we have to be faced with this concept that technology is not value neutral. And if you think about what machine learning really is, it is the application of massive amounts of compute, you know, rent a supercomputer in the cloud, kind of massive amounts of compute to massive amounts of data that's even deeper, creepier than ever before, because we have sensors everywhere, to achieve business ends and to optimize business outcomes. And we know just how good businesses are at capturing and self-regulating about externalities, right, to their business outcomes. So just as a human looking at this, I would say, wow, I've got a chance to actually speak to this practitioner crowd about if you're doing your job well, you'll be forced to drive a lot of conversations about ethics and the practice of your thing about what you're doing within your business as it goes through this data transformation. Um, and you should be ready for that. Steal yourself for that. Don't punt. Don't punt on it. We can't afford to punt. You're listening to Gradient Descent, a show where we learn about making machine learning models work in the real world. I'm your host, Lucas Bewald. Peter Wang is the co-founder, CEO, and creator of Anaconda. He's been developing commercial scientific computing and visualization software for over 15 years. He created the Pi Data community and conferences and devotes his time and energy to growing the Python data science community and teaching Python at conferences around the world. Couldn't be more excited to talk to him. So, you know, maybe for starters, I guess I know I know of you because of your product Conda, which I've used for many years. I have a feeling mm-hmm. most of the people listening to this will know what Conda is, but maybe could you describe it in your words just to make sure we're all on the same page here? Yeah, so Conda is uh, a package manager that we built as part of the overall Anaconda Python distribution. Um, and uh, it started as a way just to get people package updates of the binary builds that we do. Um, and it's expanded to then, you know, manage virtual environments so we could have different versions of libraries and different, in fact, versions of Python in user land, you know, um, on any any of the platforms we support. Um, and then we also created uh, a space for people to upload their own packages. And so that's Conda, uh, that's the anaconda.org service. Um, around that, a community has grown up called Conda Forge, where they build, they make recipes, maintain recipes, upload packages. Um, but lots of other people, like the Nvidia folks or like uh, PyTorch, you know, they will upload their own uh, official builds into the Anaconda.org system. So we run all of that infrastructure. Um, we we pay the bills for the CDN and for all the storage and everything. Um, and then we um, we do have. Um, a community around the Conda package manager itself. So people making tools and extensions for it. So that's in a nutshell what Conda is. So you can think of it as like an RPM or something like that, but for primarily for, for data science and numerical oriented um, computing. And what's your original background? Like, were, did you, were you always uh, making software, running a successful software company? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, uh, so my, my uh, I've, I've always been programming pretty much since I was like the year, uh, I think eight years old. I've been programming and something. But um, I ended up going to college for physics. And uh, so I graduated with a degree in physics and I decided to join kind of the dot-com kind of boom by going and joining a startup. And uh, I've been in software ever since then. But I spent a number of years um, working in consulting using the the scientific Python and the Python stack uh, in the 2000s. And that's really where I started seeing the possibilities for using Python for a broader set of data analysis uh, use cases than just kind of um, sort of niche scientific and engineering computing kinds of, of use cases. 
Cool. And can you, can you explain to me kind of what was going on that you started this project and, and like what the original conception was when you, when it began? Uh, Yeah, sure. Well, the original conception, so the company was called Continuum Analytics. I started that with my co-founder, Travis Olivant, who is the the creator of NumPy and one of the co-founders of SciPy. And um, we put the company together to uh, promote the use of Python and to advance the state of the art for Python for um, a broader set of data analysis needs. So that was the original vision. And at that time, this was 2012, we formed the company. Um, Wes uh, McKinney had just uh, really started uh, pushing pandas um, as, as a, a data frame library. The Jupyter Notebook was relatively new at the time. It was still called the IPython Notebook. Um, and the world was sort of awash in uh, Hadoop big data craze. And uh, we, what, what we could see was that once people threw all their data at Hadoop, they wanted to do bigger analyses. They wanted to do broader, more cross kind of cross data set, cross schema sort of um, analyses. And they would need tools like Python. SQL wasn't going to do it for them. And so we were putting this stuff together. We were trying to find um, alternative MapReduce frameworks that were nicer to Python than, than Hadoop. Uh, and the rest of kind of the Java, the Apache Java JVM big data stack, if you will, um, that the JVM world does not play with the Python C++ native world very well. So in any case, as we're looking at doing all this stuff, um, it became clear to me that if people couldn't install SciPy and Matplotlib and IPython, they were not going to be able to install any newfangled compiler tools we built or any newfangled MapReduce framework. It was just going to be completely off the table. So we started by saying, well, you know what? We should probably produce a special uh, collection of packages, a distribution of Python that helps people get started, that includes all of the basic things they need, that works on Mac, Windows, Linux. Um, and so that was the basic idea. So we built Anaconda. I, I came up with the name because it's Python for big data. So it's a big snake kind of. <laughs> nice. Although, of course, I don't like snakes that much. And Python is, of course, named after Monty Python. But whatever, we'll ignore that. <laughs> so that's where the name Anaconda came from for that product. And then that just took off like quite um, well. And so we eventually renamed the company Continuum to Anaconda because we'd be at conferences and they'd say, you know, where are you from? Or like, or, you know, what company are you with? And we say, we're with Continuum. They say, okay, yeah, that's nice. And we say, well, you, you know, we, we make this thing called Anaconda. And they say, oh, we use Anaconda. We love Anaconda. And so we're like, after that happens like the thousandth time, you sort of figure out you should, the world's telling you something. So anyway, but, um, but anyway, that's, that's the journey. And since then we've continued to push like new open source tools and, and things like that in the, uh, in the Python kind of data stack. So it's incredible the impact that I think you've had and, and certainly, you know, NumPy and SciPy in terms of just making Python a popular product. Do you, do you ever, do you ever regret choosing Python for this? Has that been a, a good choice for you? Oh, or? no, no. That was, impl- that was completely intentional. I mean, we, um, a thing that people should understand, I think, especially as more software engineers move into ML and become ML engineers, right? For them, language is just a choice. It's like, well, I'm a C++ coder now and I learned some Go and now I'm doing Python. It's like, whatever, right? And Python's got some warts and it's got some good things, but um, the thing to, to recognize is that Travis and I, when we started this, the reason why we wanted to push Python was uh, because of the democratization and the access, the accessibility of it. When you're a software developer, you learn new languages all the time because that's part of your gig. If you're not a software developer, if you're a subject matter expert or a domain expert in some other field, let's say you're a geneticist or let's mm-hmm. say you're a policymaker or whoever, right? You're an astrophysicist. Learning a new software programming language is hard. You're not really a coder anyway. 
you had to learn some Fortran or C++ or MATLAB in, in grad school. But like, otherwise, you're not doing this like on a weekend just because you love it, right? So if you learn a language, uh, this is going to stick with you for a while. And and if we, as people who make languages or who make software tools, if we can find a language that people like to use and is powerful for them and that multiple different kinds of people can use, that's incredibly powerful. So one of the things about Python is that the the, the creator of Python, Guido, or Guido um, before Python, he was working on a project uh, called Computer Programming for Everyone. And so some of the ideas that went to Python came from that precursor language called ABC. And... Um, and that readability counts in that like kind of executable pseudocode thing, the same things that make Python hard to optimize, right? They make it consternation for uh, statically typed language aficionados. Those things also make it incredibly accessible to lots of people. And when we make these kinds of advanced tools available, accessible to lots of people, what we do is we grow the universe of possible innovations. So for me, it's very intentional that we chose Python. It's... Um, there's you know a thousand new languages you could create that are better than Python in all these different dimensions. But at the end of the day, Python is kind of the language everyone uses, right? Uh, and it's valuable that everyone uses that same language. Um, so I have a very very strong opinion about the fact that it is it, that we should continue promoting its use and growing its use, even as I fundamentally believe there must be a better language out there, right? That's like the the successor to it. I have some some ideas about that as well. So. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I'd love to hear about that because, <laughs> you know, we were talking with the, the fast AI, one of the fast AI founders, Jeremy Howard, mm -hmm. and, you know, he's written so much Python code and, and he was really emphatic when I was talking to him on, on this same podcast about, you know, Python can't possibly be the future of scientific <laughs> computing. And I was kind of surprised. I mean, I would say my perspective is definitely a non-expert, but I really enjoy programming in Python and maybe it's hard for me to really see how things could be better or maybe, you know, I don't have to kind of worry about performance as much as um, mm -hmm. other people. But what, what would your take be? Like, is there any kind of language with less adoption that you think is really intriguing and could kind of replace Python or are there tweaks to Python that you'd like to see? How do you, how do you think about that? Um, hmm. So yes and no. So like there are languages out there that do interesting things um, that, that, you know, are, things that Python can't quite do or that Python may never be able to do, right? So um, one of the fastest database systems out there is a thing called KDB and the language in it, K. Um, you're not going to find any... Uh, I mean, it, it comes from like the APL roots, right? Which are the precursors to like the Fortran stuff and then MATLAB and NumPy and all these things. So you're in any kind of algol and, and modula-derived de kind of um, imperative programming language, you're not going to meet the kinds of raw numerical performance that like K and KDB can achieve. And, and the creator of K um, and KDB has a new thing that he's building called Shakti, which is, which is um, you know, uh, even more interesting. So there's that kind of lineage of things, right? There's sort of like uh, the, the most out there amazing bits of Lisp plus like Fortran and you get something like that. And Python is not there, but Python has a lot of the good parts of the ideas there and expresses them in a uh, infix um, imperative language. Then there's things like Julia that do whole Wait, program sorry, optimization. Sorry. Mm -hmm. Let me make sure I understood what you said about K and other ones like it. Yeah. What's the advantage there that they have the potential to be faster? It's it's uh, it's more than just faster. It's um, it's a fast and correct and performant uh, representation of your idea. But mm. you have to sort of warp your brain a little bit to thinking in that way. Um, mm -hmm. So Ken Iverson, the the creator of APL, which is kind of the root of all of this stuff. Um, you know, he had a, he he had this this idea that that notation is a tool of thought. 
So if you really want to help people think better and faster and more correct all at the same time, you need better notations. And so, so if you ever go and look at a bit of K, it, it, it looks different. Let's just put it that way than what you are mostly used to in like a NumPy or a Python or even a C plus plus or C or Java world. It's completely different. Comes with a different brain space. Um, and so, um, yeah. Interesting. But there's Can something you say like a little that. more like, is that just because it's sort of following different conventions or is there something, is there something to this, this perspective? Cause I feel like every so often, not in many years, but in grad school, I used to occasionally run across Fortran and it would just be like, right. okay, I'm stopping here. Like I'm not going to go any deeper. <laughs> this just feels impenetrable to me, but, but is, right. that, is that my fault or is that like, um, yeah, is there something there that's like better about it, I guess, in the, in the notation? Well, um, be- well, better is a big word. So, so sure, I'll sure. back up and, and say like, um, the difference between something like K or fourth or, um, or J kind of like, uh, J K <laughs> fourth APL versus, uh, Algol or like Pascal C, you know, kind of this lineage of fairly imperative procedural languages. Um, at the end of the day, we are programming when we write a program, we have, we're sort of meeting, um, we're making a balance of, th- of three things, right? There's there's the expression itself, like what it is we're trying to express, like you know, there's the data, the representation of the data, and then there's like some compute system that's able to compute on that data. And so this is, I call this kind of the iron triangle of programming is that you've got expressions and expressivity or expressiveness, you have data schemas, data correctness, um, things like that, and then you've got the compute, which is runtime again correctness, runtime characteristics, and every programming system sits somewhere in the middle of this like ternary chart, right? And usually you trade off. What happens is usually collapse one axis onto the other and you have a linear trade off. Mm -hmm. And most of the post Nicholas Wirth kind of era of like looking at, okay, you've got data, you've got a virtual machine and you're going to basically load data in and do things to it with functions that proceed like this. That's a very, that model is sort of everyone has in their heads as a programming system, Right. When you look at something like fourth or like K, you actually come from a different perspective. So fourth, I'll, I'll throw that in there because even when you do have an explicit data representation in mind, when you write programs in fourth or if you ever had an HP calculator, reverse Polish notation, probably the closest mm-hmm. that most people will get, ever get to fourth, um, you're explicitly manipulating stacks. You're explicitly manipulating these things and you're writing tiny programs that can do a lot. It's mm-hmm. amazing, right? And that's with an explicit stack and explicit these kinds of things. When you go to something like Lisp or like K, you're writing these conceptual things, these expressions. Uh, well, in the case of Lisp, it's a conceptual algorithm. In the case of K, it's also an algorithm, but it's an algorithm on parallel data, parallelizable data structures, on arrays and on vectors. And then you you can, uh, a part of your first class thing that you can do is you can change the structure of those data structures. You can do fold operators. You can apply in these ways. You can broadcast and collapse and project. And all of those are first class little things you can do in line as you're trying to express something else. So you end up with a line of K that's this long that would take you, you know, this, a page of Java to do. Mm -hmm. Um, And by the way, the genius of the K system is that the underlying machine that interprets that, the compiler and then the interpreter system is incredibly mathematically elegant um, mm. because there's actually fundamental algebra that you can sit in the heart of this stuff that you can then basically K will load into, I think the claim is that it loads into L1 iCache. And so you 
your program just streams through the CPU like a mofo. Like it just, <laughs> you're never even hitting L2, right? So that's kind of an amazing thing. And so I think when you when you turn around, you look at something like Python, which is like not that optimized at all. It's like the C-based virtual machine. But when we do NumPy things, you're expressing some of those same ideas, right? So yeah, I was yeah. going to say this anyway. reminds me of my experience with NumPy where, you know, I keep kind of making it tighter and tighter and shorter and shorter and more and more elegant. But then right. when I need to debug it, I feel like I often end up just unpacking the whole thing again. And I don't know if that's like me being stupid, but that's that's definitely my Well, process. it depends on what you're debugging though, right? Because <laughs> you can make it compact. And then when you debug it, it's like, are you debugging a misma- a, a bu- an actual bug in the uh, in the runtime of NumPy itself? Are you debugging a performance mismatch with your expectation relative to how the data structure is laid out in memory? Are you debugging a impedance mismatch between your understanding of what NumPy is going to do in each of these steps versus what it's, you know, there's a lot of right. things to debug, so to speak. But that's one of the downsides of making really tight NumPy snippets. Because I did some of that back in the day, and it was like, oh, this is so great. And then something <laughs> blows up, and it's like, oh, crap. <laughs> but wait, I'm like taking off on all these tangents, and I'm actually really fascinated by, oh, this, <laughs> by this, this initial thing. This is a conversation. <laughs> totally. But like, so you were saying, so you're comparing to K, mm-hmm. which actually Jeremy Howard did did talk about and really, really praised. Um, ah, great. But yeah. but then what what are the other kind of languages that might that have like interesting pieces that could be useful for scientific computing? Yes. Well, I think we um, there. So Jim Gray, the late great Jim Gray, wrote an amazing paper back in 2005 called "Scientific Computing in the Coming Decade." It was prescient. It was ahead of its time. I think. I mean, it was well. It was at Jim's time, so he knew it. But he was writing this great paper, and it talked about how um, uh, so many different things he talked about in this paper. It's just it's worth everyone to read it. But uh, he talked about how we would need to have computational sort of notebooks how we need to have metadata indices over large data that would have to live in data centers that we couldn't move anymore. Uh, we'd have to do computing. We have to move ideas to code. Oh, sorry, move code to mm-hmm. data, move ideas to data. Um, mm-hmm. All these different things. But one of the things he explores is why don't scientists use databases, right? Databases is the realm of like business apps and like Oracle nerds. Why don't geneticists and astrophysicists use databases? The closest they get is using HDF5, Right, which is really just like it's a okay, it's a file system. Great, it's a tarball, right? Um, it's a tarball that lays out a memory, so you can compute on it. So that's great. You can do out of core execution on it. But, but why don't scientists use databases more? And um, so he kind of looked into this a little bit more. But what one of the things I think that would really move scientific computing forward is to treat the data side of the problem as being more than just fast arrays. And mm. actually, as we have more and more sensor systems that have more and more computational machinery to get to additional data sets, which then become transformed to additional data sets, um, that entire data provenance pipeline, even as businesses have to reinvent the enterprise data warehouse to do machine learning on all their business data, I think scientific computing has to honestly sit down and face this giant problem it's tried to ignore for very for a very long time, which is how do we actually make sense of our data? Not just some, you know, like slash home slash, you know, some grad student's name slash temp slash project five slash whatever. Like we've got to actually do this for reals, right? So I think one of the ways to move scientific computing forward, um, that is on the completely opposite side of like going to the K land and fast APL land, is treating data, the metadata problem and the data catalog problem. And in fact, the schema and semantics problem as a first-class problem for scientific computing. So if you look at what F-sharp did with type providers and building a, a nice extensible catalog of schema 
that was actually part of your coding as you were using data sets that and they and they did that in like 10 years ago that that stuff is amazing right and that is something that we should make available that's something that would be a ma- that would be a game changer um i don't know if you saw this thing where the the uh some like internet you know, council of like geneticists they they declared they would change actually gene names do you, you hear about this no they no. changed there was there were gene names they changed from march 1 sept 1 and things like that because um bioinformaticians use Excel so much. And when those show up in Excel data, Excel translates them into dates and it screws them up. So because of Excel's auto formatting of their things, they're literally changing the names of these genes. This is how depraved science has gotten, right? Is that we will, not that those are necessarily great names to start with, but the fact that we will wrap ourselves around a fairly broken tool for this purpose to, you know, I don't know. That's, so for me, handling the data and schema problem for science, like full stop, that's a huge part of the problem that needs to be done. Yeah. That's so, so. interesting. Is that something you're working on? <laughs> no, no, no. I have a company to run. Like we had, <laughs> we're to make money. We're going to make money. And yeah, no, no. no. That, but if I, if, if when we get to a certain point where uh, we have the, the resources to invest in additional projects, um, then this is one of the ones that I would absolutely try to tackle. We do have a project that's kind of in this vein. It's called Intake. Um, it, it's, it's not the sexiest sounding thing in the world, but Intake is a virtual data catalog that lets you set up a data server. So if you set up, set up an Intake server over here near your data and you fire up the client just in your you know, terminal or in your notebook or whatever, you can connect to it and you can basically do, you hit it with like remote pandas and DAS calls and things like that. And you can also create transformed, almost like um, uh, materialized views of those things mm-hmm. on the server. So it's been used in a few projects. Some people are starting to pick it up, but it's it's something I would recommend people check out. It's called Intake. Cool. All right, we'll put a link to it. Yeah. Um, do you so so? Can you give me some examples of who your customers are and and what's the the value? This is like such business speak. What's the value that they get out of <laughs> <laughs> your yeah. company? So we have a couple of different things that we sell. Um, for a while now, we've been selling a enterprise machine learning platform called Anaconda Enterprise, and that has. Um, it's it's based on Kubernetes and data scientists can, um, you know, IT can stand it up, data scientists log into it and they have a managed, governed uh, notebook environment. Well, any number of different UIs, but generally people prefer notebook environments. Um, and then they have one-click deploy for dashboards, for like notebooks and things like that. Um, they can run machine learning models and, you know, have REST endpoints they deploy. It's sort of like, it's a, it's a yeah, a big data science platform thing. There's another mm-hmm. thing we sell that is just the package server. So a lot of the value that businesses get from us is that they have a actual vendor-backed um, place to get binaries to run like in their governed environments, which actually does matter to them, right? Um, and so in that situation, what they want to do is they have like a server, uh, they buy a server from us that has the packages and then it's proxied locally for them. Uh, we don't get to see all the packages they're downloading, what they're doing with their data analysis. And they also have faster access to all of these different packages. They also, their IT people, this is a really important thing. IT has a chance then to also govern which clusters, which machines, and which environments can use which versions of which libraries, right? Mm -hmm. Which is a really important thing because in an enterprise environment, you have data scientists who want the latest and greatest and bleeding edge everything. And then you've got production machines, which you do not want getting the latest and greatest of everything. You want to know exactly which version, how many CVEs, which ones are patched, and that's all that runs in production, right? So this is a package server that gives um, that gives businesses the ability to do that. So those are primarily our two commercial products. And we'll be coming up with some more things later in the year 
um, you know, it's an individual commercial edition that individual practitioners can buy, things like that. So, and you've been doing this a while, right? Like at least a decade. Not no, not a decade. Um, it- an, an octal decade. I mean, we started in 2012. <laughs> so, yeah. nice. I guess like what. Um- you know, even that is, is quite a long time, I think, you know, for this space. I'm curious, like what, like when you started, what kinds of customers or like what, what industries are using you the most and, and how has that changed over the last eight years? Yeah. When we started, uh, it was very heavily in the, fi- in the, uh, finance. So hedge funds, investment banks, things like that. Um, there was a heavy use of Python there at the time. Um, and, um, we were, Doing a lot of consulting and training, um, open source consulting, uh, standard sort of things like that. Um, unlike a lot of you, you, nowadays, you see a lot of these open source uh, venture backed open source companies that that have like a product and it's like here's our open source foobar and here's the enterprise foobar plus plus right and then they like and then Amazon builds a <laughs> builds a clone of it <laughs> off their open source and they go public anyway, make tons of money. This is a, pl- this is a play that many companies have done, especially around some of the big data infrastructure projects, right? It's a pretty popular move. Um, we are an open source company that supports uh, an ecosystem of innovation. So there's a lot of things that are out there that we deliver and ship via Anaconda that we ourselves don't write. Um, mm. And so, so that innovation space has changed and it's gotten sucked into so many different things. So now we've seen, um, Everybody, I mean, insurance, uh, oil and gas, um, logistics, uh, DOD and three letter agencies. And just like everybody is using Python to do data analysis and machine learning. So it's just literally everywhere, like sports betting sites, um, Netflix and the Ubers of the world, like everybody is doing this stuff. Um, Now, not all of them are paying us yet (laughs) as paying customers, but that's that diversification of, well, I wouldn't say diversification, but that growth and adoption was what we were hoping what we were hoping to unleash, right, when we started the company. And so it's been really great great to see all that happening. We couldn't have predicted deep learning. We couldn't have predicted that machine learning would have been the thing to take off. We were really thinking that it would be more uh, rapid dashboards around notebooks, around building. Here's a data analysis. I'm a subject matter expert because I can write a little bit of Python code. I now can produce a much more um, meaningful rich interactive dashboard and control pane for my business processes or for my like whatever, like heavy industrial machinery. We saw that happening pretty well in the 2000s around a rich client tool set um, as sort of a MATLAB displacer. But now with machine learning on the rise, it's completely flipped Python usage into a different mode. That's the, as you would know, it weights and biases, like that's the dominant conversation on Python. But these other use cases are still there. There's still a lot of people using Python for all these engineering simulation things. Um, and so anyway, it's just been great to see all this growth and, and diversification of use cases. Is, is machine learning even the top use case that you see? I feel like it's, it's certainly the, it feels like the buzziest right now, but I always wonder like, what's the reality of the usage volumes versus the, it's what the, you see on the aspiration ground? that people get paid for <laughs> that way. Um, I think there's a strong disconnect between um, older businesses, I would say Python has crossed the chasm, right? So you t- talk about the, the 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 chasm of technology and crossing the chasm. Python has crossed the chasm. On the other side of the chasm, the way that this kind of innovative technology has landed is that you have a lot of buyers who are not as sophisticated about what it is they really want to buy or what it is they're buying or how ready they are as a business to adopt what they've bought, okay? Mm-hmm. So you can buy the fanciest like Ferrari, but if you have a dirt track road, it's not going to go as fast as if you have like, an actual smooth paved road. So a lot of businesses have this problem where they can buy the the hottest, sweetest ML gear, team, tooling, blah, blah, blah. 
But then their internal data is just a mishmash. And so you spend 80% of your time digging that ML team out of the data swamp, right? So that message, I think people are starting to get it now as, as they come to, you know, over into the, the, the chasm of mist, uh, <laughs> the trough of the trough of what mis, uh, not despair, something. Yeah. Disillusionment. Sad. Disillusionment. Wait, yeah, Disillusionment. <laughs> That's what it is. That one. That's what it is. Right. And so, um, but the truth is this, it's like, there's an ML uh, hierarchy of needs, just like Maslow's. Right? right. And if you don't have your data stuff together, if you don't understand the domain problem you're trying to solve, you have no business even doing data science on it. If you haven't done data science, there's no models to go and optimize with machine learning, right? Um, right. So, but if you get all that in place, then machine learning can absolutely deliver on the promise. So I think people try to buy the promise, but most of the people they pay are out there slugging a bunch of like trying to basically denormalize data, dedupe data, and just do a lot of that kind of stuff. But you actually see it like, I mean, most of the most of the verticals that you mentioned, I think, are not the the first things that come to mind here in Silicon Valley for ML applications. But but right. you actually see like insurance doing ML and thinking of it as ML, just just as a specific example. Oh, absolutely. Uh, so the hardcore finance folks are probably the only people I would say that lead Silicon Valley in terms of ML. I mean, the hedge funds were there first um, because they operate in a pure data environment, mm-hmm. and and the thing about that data environment is everyone else is operating in the same pure data environment. And by the way, it's all zero sum. So you like, and if you screw up by a millisecond, you lose millions of dollars. Incredible, incredibly hard odds to, or hard boundary conditions to be optimizing uh, in, right? And I think Silicon Valley, there's a lot of, it's a lot of consumer behavior. It's a lot of like this kind of thing. Uh, Certainly anything in ad tech and kind of the attention economy, the ML there is fairly low stakes, right? Um, I would say that, I mean, of, of course, hundreds, uh, hundreds of billions of dollars of corporate valuation hang in the balance. But like, if you screw a little bit of something up, it's like, well, they'll be back tomorrow doom scrolling. So we'll give them some better content tomorrow. Um, but when you're in insurance and these other things, the ML, those models, you know, the kinds of diligence that a credit card company has around its models and model integrity, the kinds of actuarial work that goes into um, building models at an insurance company, that's real. That's like, there's real hard uncertainty. If you screw up, that's a hundred million dollar screw up, right? So there's real stuff happening there and there are no lightweights on this stuff. They're doing real things. Yeah. Cool. I guess when I've talked to insurance companies, it's felt like um, there's almost these sort of two separate teams that feel a little bit at odds with each other. Like there's sort of like the, the, old school math guys, like the actuaries who mm-hmm. are like, what is this? We've been doing ML forever. Like this is just a rebranding of the stuff we've always been doing. Right. And then a couple guys off to the side, maybe doing some crazy deep learning projects that you wonder how connected they are to the business. Like, do you, yes. do you feel that same dynamic or? Oh yeah, you, absolutely. I mean, you know, any, any organization over like 50 people is a complex beast, right? So um, even 50 people can be pretty complex. So um, these, these larger firms, there is definitely a struggle internally as they do this data transformation into the cybernetic era, is what I've been calling it, the cybernetic era. And um, many of them, the theory of action is still open, right? It's like, well, we sell this particular insurance policy and we'll see what, you know, what comes back five years from now, right? And, you know, when we get screwed, like, we'll look at our five-year retroactive performance and then we'll know if the model is correct. Um, And those kind of old guard folks who are, you know, yeah, a a bunch of actuaries writing a bunch of SAS code, that's some old school stuff. And then there are new people in that space who have access to the data, who have the statistical background, and who know they can do way better. 
And so there is this kind of there is a conversation happening. I mean, within credit card companies, you'll have like they're a great example, right? Because there's like regulatory pressure. There's like old school models in SaaS. There's newer people trying to do some better credit models, and there's really cutting edge people doing uh, real time risk, real time fraud, like all these kinds of things. Um, using deep learning sometimes, using all sorts of GPU-based clusters. Um, so you just see a, a whole pile of different things within like a credit card company um, that you might not see it as, I mean, in Silicon Valley. It's going to be more monoculture because there's less uh, tech overburden that they had to like dig out from, right? There's like, well, we need a bunch of machines in the cloud. You got it because there's no regulators checking any of this stuff. So, mm. yeah. What do you make of like, I guess, like the MATLABs and the SASs of the world? Like, is that ever like a sensible choice for someone for their their tech stack or is that just a completely legacy um, um, software choice for de novo? Te- well, uh, let me see here. I think the best way to answer that is that anytime we make a technology choice, we should be very respectful of Conway's law, which is that the technology systems that we build, the software systems we build are a reflection of the communication patterns within uh, the, the teams that built it. Right. Um, Third time that's come up this week in interviews, by the way. Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But but it it, it hits it hits uh, the ML stuff in a different way, which is that if those different teams speak different languages, then you have two teams. If the same team speaks two different languages, you have two teams, right? Um, and this and we see this actually with people uh, trying to get Python into ML production, where sometimes those production processes are optimized for managing a pile of Java with a bunch of Maven, right? Or uh, it's like you had recode out with all in C++ because we only deploy TensorFlow C++. So... There's this kind of thing. When you have a language barrier, you create two technology fiefdoms, which then lead to a a bimodal or trimodal or whatever kind of software product. And an ML system is a software product. You know, however you want to look at it, it fundamentally has a pile of software in it. So when we talk about this question of like, is MATLAB or SAS ever an appropriate choice? The answer is, well, obviously, yes, because the whole team knows MATLAB or SAS and they're building this, then you should then you should probably use MATLAB or SAS, like even for brand new projects starting tomorrow. Um, however, the, the question then is taking a step back. If I'm the manager of this team, how how much longer do I want to only have a, to have a team that only knows how to use MATLAB or SAS when clearly all the papers at ICML or whatever are being published in Python, right? So like you got to sort of make that call if you're, if you're the manager. So I would say that the answer is yes, but if you're doing that, you should be aware that there's all this innovation happening in different languages. And even if you bring those languages into a hybrid environment, if you say, fine, I'll hybridize. I got my legacy uh, MATLAB that's never going away because that's how we model like airflow through this turbine system. I'm not going to redo all that work. But then I have to build discipline about how to hybridize, how to bring these people forward so they know some Python, bring the Python technology back to be able to couple with the MATLAB and see yourself as, as having to become an expert in doing that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that's the, the answer is the yes, that, that would be my answer. Yes, you could absolutely make a justification for starting new projects and those things. But generally, if, if you're doing it in teams that already know those languages, I probably right. wouldn't recommend it for a Python team. What about, okay, what about R? Like, where does that sit? Is that, is that ever like a reasonable choice for a team <laughs> where you, you have Greenfield or, or, um, yeah, of course, or not? No, of course. I mean, there's, like, there's lots of people who do that. And what would be going on that you would choose to use R versus uh, Python? Well, for me, because I'm a Python expert, I would choose Python. So the only reason I would have my team use R is if there's a lot of existing stuff that's in R uh, or they're all R experts, in which case I'm not going to try to convert them to Python. I'm going to try to make the best go of R with them, right? (laughs) Um, 
it, but if there are really new capabilities and things that are only available in like a Python bridge to some CPU or some GPU stuff, then I would encourage that I, I would have to hire some people who are uh, polyglot that can build that bridge. Um, so again, it comes down to the teams. Although I feel like you do, I don't think you really have the perspective that like kind of all languages are created equal, right? I mean, of course, you know, we hit (laughs) like the real world and, and, you know, we have to choose our language maybe around what library is available or like what's going to be maintainable. But I'm, I'm curious what you kind of make of R. I mean, I, when I was in grad school, I used all R and I, I absolutely loved it. And then I had Mm -hmm. this experience of like, you know, kind of seeing pandas and NumPy and just be like, well, this is way better. Like, I just, I just want to switch to this and use this. Well, some people take the opposite position from you on that. They would say, I went to R and now I can think like a statistician again and mm, actually do my, you know, express what I'm trying. Because like deep, the, the tidyverse and dplyr and these things are so nice and ggplot's gorgeous and all these things. Yeah, that's true. A lot, a lot of the R advocates, they have, they have good, you know, good points. Like there, there is, um, I would say a more, uh, monoculture is the wrong term. Uh, there's a smaller set of obvious choices in R. And if you've used those and the team around you uses those, you can get to very nice results without a whole lot of like people tearing their hair out because they have conflicting versions of like 15 different plotting libraries like we have in the Python land, right? So um, so anyway, that's... So yeah, I don't know. Of course, I don't think all languages are created equal. But you, you did ask me a question, which is, is there ever a reason to do these different languages? And I said, yes, there's always a reason to use these other languages. That was probably a poorly formed question. I was giving you too many outs. <laughs> You're giving me an out for sure. A CEO of a company that wants to sell software. I know you don't want to take too hard of a position. Well, Anaconda, well, Anaconda does support R. I will point out, Anaconda does support R and R packages managed within the Conda environment. So you can actually manage, um, and one of the things that we're doing is actually looking at the precise versions and building the dependency graph. So if you want to go in and you don't want to just take a whole snapshot, like a whole CRAN snapshot, and you want to say, well, what if I, I want to use this version of this thing, but that version of that thing, I just want to upgrade that. Can I do it? So we're using a Conda approach to package management for the R ecosystem as well. And that's, that's what's happening in conjunction with the Conda Forge folks. That's been building out. Now we have coverage of several thousand libraries uh, in the R universe too. So, well, awesome. Yeah. It's, a uh, interesting. I, okay. Here's the, here's the question I really want to ask <laughs> you. I'm just going to ask Go <laughs> for this it. question. Go for it. This might be dumb, but I guess the one thing that I really felt when I switched from R to Python is like, man, the graphing libraries are worse. And I hope I don't offend anyone <laughs> with that comment. And I feel like I've never like I feel like NumPy has improved so much and um and SciPy seems to have like so many libraries that that anything that I would want is like not a uh super deep scientist um mm-hmm. I don't I don't I feel like it used to feel like Python or R had way more packages to cover my needs and it feels like Python's kind of catching up there but mm-hmm. it sort of feels to me like the the graphing libraries are still kind of frustrating is that because mm-hmm. I'm misusing them or is there a is there a library out there that I should know uh, about? No, How do you- yeah, no, the, the, the graphing libraries in Python are awesome, and it's clearly the user's fault, so I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, <laughs> There's just no. one user. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, it's a common complaint. I think what happens in Python there is that um, if, if one were to take a sort of a more objective look at all these, there's the author of like two or three different, um, not, not the only author, but the originator, let's say, of two or three uh, <laughs> of the graphing libraries in Python, um, and now there's like, there's several dozen, right? There, there have been. Uh, what what we have here is um, a couple of different things going on. So R does what R does very well, precisely because it was designed by a user community for that community. So 
Um, and also because of its sort of lispy heritage, it is able to do some really neat tricks by preserving kind of the transformation pipeline and kind of quoting the expressions, things like that, that give you some really awesome superpowers when you're building, like, just give me a facet of like these things. And it's like, it just does the right thing, right? Obviously. I mean, also Hadley did great work with ggplot too. Like there's nothing, not to say there wasn't hard work involved there, but, um, but then if you want to go and do some additional, if you want to do plots outside of some of the things that are, that ggplot is great for, then it's a more impoverished landscape, let's say, right? If you want to do real-time spectrograms there in R, I don't know, man, like that's, you know, <laughs> or if you want to do like really large-scale interactive web graphics with like all this like crazy map data, True. I don't know. It's like, so the Python yeah. world has always been more multi, uh, it's, it's just been, there's a lot more Mongols across a bigger plane. And mm. so there's just many different flavors, different things all over the place. And Matplotlib was written by a guy in grad school trying to plot EEG plots, right? Um, and then he moved on to hedge fund, but then he was trying to copy what he knew, which was MATLAB. And it does great for that. Actually, if you're an engineering MATLAB user, MATPOLIB works great. Like you just fits <laughs> your brain. Right. But most, most like, you know, ML people were not MATLAB people. Right. Um, and then likewise, if you, uh, use tools like uh, Seaborn, you know, they get you kind of some of the way there, but then they don't have the support from the language level. Uh, to encapsulate some of the statistical transformations that would help inform something even better. So it has to sort of include some of those transformations within it, right? Mm. Uh, facets, names, things like that. So then you go around and you look at some of the interactive plotting systems, uh, whether it's Altair, whether it's like Bokeh or any of these other things, Plotly, um, then they all are solving for kinds of different parts of the problem. And to do as much of a cover of the Python usage, usage use cases is just bigger than any kind of project was able to do i think there's more compact set of use cases in r and so therefore it was possible to do a more a higher level of cover in a single project does that make sense totally yeah like, that's really well said thanks. and very and very um non-judgmental i love your <laughs> <laughs> we're all about big ten anaconda it's all about the big ten right big ten it's all yeah about big totally ten. yeah you do packages no no we do pa not played yeah. favorites <laughs> not played uh, favorites <laughs> Um, so, okay. Well, we, we always end with, uh, two questions that I want to make sure I get mm -hmm. them in. Cause I'm curious to hear your thoughts. So, um, so one question that we always ask people, and maybe I should ask this in a more expansive way. What we always ask people is, is there a topic in ML that doesn't get as much attention as you think it should, that, that people should focus on more than they do. Mm -hmm. And I might expand that for you into like all mm -hmm. of scientific computing. Like what's, what's the things that people aren't, or what's one thing that you think people don't pay as much attention to as, as this usefulness would suggest? I think um, the top, well, a topic, there's lots of topics. My general thing stems in, um, it's, it comes from this place where um, I feel very strongly that ML practitioners, uh, more so than just software like coder nerds, are going to run into the ethical um, implications of their work. Um, and m even more uncomfortably, they're going to be the ones forcing that conversation in businesses that for a long time maybe have not had to think about that. Because ML is about engineering the crown jewels of the business models. So uh, you're like, hey, we just figure out this way. If we buy these two data sets and do this kind of model and reject these kinds of people from our user base, we get this kind of lift. Should we do it? Well, it's like, heck, I mean, 
I never, you know, I'm just a VP of God knows what. I didn't ask to be presented this incredibly difficult trolley problem. Like, don't look at me, right? <laughs> I slept through that crap in, in, in college, you know? So I think that ML, more than any other thing right now, um, we have to be faced with this concept that technology is not value neutral. And if you think about what machine learning really is, it is the application of massive amounts of compute, you know, rent a supercomputer in the cloud, kind of massive amounts of compute to massive amounts of data that's even deeper and creepier than ever before because we have sensors everywhere to achieve business ends and to optimize business outcomes. And we know just how good businesses are at capturing and self-regulating about externalities, right, to their business outcomes. So just as a human looking at this, I would say, wow, I've got a chance to actually speak to this practitioner crowd about if you're doing your job well, you'll be forced to drive a lot of conversations about ethics and the practice of your thing about what you're doing within your business as it goes through this data transformation. Um, and you should be ready for that. Steal yourself for that. Don't punt. Um, mm. Don't punt on it. We can't afford to punt. Besides stealing yourself for that, which is probably a good verb <laughs> for that, <laughs> do, you, do you have any suggestions on how someone might educate themselves in that? Because I think we have a lot of people listening to this that's in that situation that might be wondering where could I find more resources do you have any suggestions? Yes. So I think um, there's there's books that have been read that have been written now, especially uh, in the era of like the the Facebook and information attention economy sort of dystopia stuff. Um, there are a lot of there's books by uh, uh, Shoshana Zuboff, um, Kathy O'Neill, uh, Weapons of Math Destruction. Um, there are books like even like I think Christian Rudder, Dataclism, right, and some of these other things. You can look at uh, arm yourself with knowledge about the anti-patterns of what happens when ML blindly applied goes wrong. And that at least gives you a bit of a war chest of like, or a quiver of things you can reach for to say, what we're doing here is exactly like what happened when I just pull one out of the hat, like when AOL anonymized their, uh, their user data, or was AOL or AT&T anonymized their user data back in the early 2000s. And they did this anonymous data release and this thing happened and somebody got outed. Like there's all sorts of wonderful examples you can pull from because we've actually been making a lot of mistakes. Um, mm-hmm. So one thing is, Take your time, take the time to read about that stuff. Number two is go to and attend talks about sort of this, quote unquote, this soft topic about ethics in ML and and fairness and and whatnot. I know some of it may seem a bit sermony and preachy. It's like, hey, I came here for like the hardcore convnets. I didn't come here to go listen to somebody drone on about ethics. But, But in every conference you go to and everything you go and do, spend some time getting educated about the state of the art thinking. Cause right now we are, you know, people are trying to think about preserving privacy, privacy, preserving encryption. And some of these, like uh, these things, differential privacy, those things are coming. Those are going to be part of like the state of the art best practice soon. You should be mm-hmm. educated about those things and not only just do it because you have to, but know why, because I guarantee you when you go and scope those into your project, some VP is going to come and say, well, can't you just get rid of that and do it faster? And mm-hmm. you have to be able to argue the principles of why you need to do it this way. Right? So that would be the one thing I would say is, um, I don't know if it gets maybe already too much press, but it probably doesn't get enough press, is mm. that the ML practitioners, if they're not going to be just um, serfs in this, if they actually want to have agency in that conversation to hold their own ground in what we should do and not have a pile of regret down the road, then mm-hmm. now is the time to start getting educated and start asserting yourselves more in those internal corporate political discussions. Mm. Awesome. Well said. Ooh, take a deep breath. <laughs> final final <laughs> question. All right, um, final question. When you look at companies trying to get stuff into production, what are the 
what are the surprising bottlenecks that they run into? Like when somebody's trying to take an ML project from like, you know, kind of an idea to deploy it and it's working and doing something useful. Mm-hmm. Um, where do you see people get stuck? Oh, well, um, every part of the process can be troublesome. I, I don't know if there's a surprise there at all. I guess one, yeah. I, one thing that's surprising to me is how many, um, how many corporate IT places are still, um, pretty backwards in relative to open source. Um, mm-hmm. this was surprising to me in 2014. It's still surprising now. How many places will say, well, we don't really either. Well, we don't really do open source or here's the open source that we do. It's just these few things. And then when they say that, they trot out all the tired FUD arguments about how can we trust this thing, how can we trust that. The other thing is that there is uh, still a very strong Python allergy and a lot of lack, of lack of awareness of what Python actually is and can do. And so there are some companies that are like, well, this is a Java shop or this is a .NET shop. We really only know how to deploy these ways. You know, we don't deploy Python. You have to recode that because it's just a language. You can recode in this other thing, right? Why, why wouldn't you be able to? Um, and these IT shops, have, they don't understand that when you use Python, you're harnessing, like you're linking into like seriously optimized low-level code that a lot of seriously smart people have been doing. And there's not the equivalent over in the Java space. And all the data marshaling back and forth is going to cost you a tremendous amount of performance in the Java space, right? And these IT shops have not yet understood that. And, and sadly, a lot of the ML engineers, they are relatively new and they don't know how to articulate that argument. They don't know how to sit there and talk about JVM internals and all these other bits because that's not their gig, right? So mm-hmm. I think that's been sort of the depressing. It's surprising that it's still this issue because we do have companies that deploy Python in frontline production stuff to do some of these ML things and they're fine. And even with that as proof points, there's still kind of these industry uh, wow. inertia. Yeah. I mean, what would you even use for like a non-open source machine learning framework? This shows you how sort of maybe Silicon Valley Kool-Aid I, I've um, become, but... No, I, I think I think what ends up happening, <laughs> to be honest, they'll buy some vendor thing, which still just embeds the machine learning, the same open source <laughs> machine learning thing. Inside. No, I'm, I, I kid you not. Like that's literally what they will do sometimes. It is dep- if you get into corporate IT enough, like it gets pretty depressing about the kinds of like the incentives are all messed up there, unfortunately. Which is one of the reasons why Silicon Valley does run circles around some of these other companies. Um, yeah. Man, we should have we should have ended on your ethics answer. This is just depressing. <laughs> <laughs> I guess both are kind of worrying in different different ways. We have um, our work cut out for us. We have our work cut out for us. That's for sure. <laughs> nice. That's a good way of putting it. Um, <laughs> thanks so much. That was really fun. Yeah. Um, no. Thank you. When we first started making these videos, we didn't know if anyone would be interested or or want to see them. But we made them for fun, and we started off by making videos that would teach people. And now we get these great interviews with real industry practitioners. And I love making this available to the whole world so everyone can watch these things for free. The more feedback you give us, the better stuff we can produce. So please subscribe, leave a comment, engage with us. We really appreciate it.